Welcome to Season 2, Episode 35 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Brian Evanson. Brian is a writer. His most recent collection, The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, is out now through Coffeehouse Press. Thanks for joining me, Brian. Thank you. Very good to be here. You're in Oregon at the moment, but you normally live in LA. First of all, how's life in Oregon? Uh, life in Oregon is good. It's actually, it's very different from LA in the sense that it is very wet and rainy up here right now. And in LA, it's like we're going through a drought, so it's incredibly dry. Uh, here it's it's the exact opposite, so they're having flooding. Um, but it's it's interesting. I mean, we've only been here a few days, um, seeing my parents, and um, just the change in climate. Um, um, you know, and both of those things are functions of kind of things going on uh, ecologically. I think, but but the fact that one place is a little wetter than usual and another place is a little drier than usual is very strange. I might have to ask you a bit more about climate change as we go along. But tell me a bit more about your life in LA. Obviously, you do your writing, and you also are involved in the television industry. Yeah, I, I do several things. I, moved, I originally moved to LA to work at CalArts, which is a arts college, which is just outside of LA. So I do that. And then I also work on my writing. And then um, over the pandemic, I started working in TV rooms as well. So I worked for, for one, for, for HBO, for a show that may or may not get made. And then I, I just finished work for a show called A Friend of the Family that Peacock is putting out, uh, which is uh, uh, you know in the process of being filmed right now and should probably come out at some time in the fall, I would guess. Tell me a bit more about life in LA, living through the pandemic, and I guess now coming out of it. I mean, you know, LA is nice because it's it's uh, you know it, it's it, the weather is good all all year round, <laughs> and so I mean, I had friends who were in New York who felt incredibly trapped during the pandemic. Um, you know, and, and just just really kind of suffered with that. With, with LA, I mean, I feel like the thing we could do is we we walk a lot. Um, we are lucky enough to have a, a place that has a pool, which is not uncommon at all in, in Los Angeles. Um, and and you know that just made it bearable. So so we kind of made it through the pandemic okay um, with that. Um, things are starting to come back to normal. I feel like, um, and and that's very strange. I mean, our my my son's school. Um, stopped having requiring masks before the the college that I, I teach at did by, by three or four months, and so it was very strange the first days of him kind of going to school and 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 he for for a while at least continued to wear a mask but but I would say ninety percent of his classmates just stopped kind of immediately wearing them, and we kind of held our breath to see what had happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, LA is is uh, good for um, it's just it's spread out enough that it's as cities go, it's it's more bearable for for something like the pandemic. Tell me a bit more about your teaching work. Uh, I teach at CalArts and and um, mainly I, I teach creative writing there. But but the since it's an art school, they give me uh, an incredible amount of flexibility in terms of of how I teach the classes I teach and what I teach. So I teach a speculative fiction workshop there. Um, with speculative kind of very broadly defined. So some students will come in and do, um, um, you know, literary fiction that has a kind of like slightly fantastical edge. Other students will do something that's more genre related. Some students will do magical realism. And we just use that as a way of thinking about, all right, what, what is 
what kinds of similarities exist between different kinds of speculative fiction, between different kinds of fantastical fiction. And that for me is just, it's a fun class to teach. And I always teach it in a way that allows me to read stuff I either want to reread or stuff that I feel like would be helpful for my own work. Um, and then, you know, other classes I teach, I teach a class that's called The Monstrous and the Terrible, which is about um, horror fiction and film. And so we look at a bunch of horror stories and then we look at uh, a bunch of films and just think about those and talk about that. Um, I teach a class on fairy tales. Uh, I teach more traditional workshops, short story workshops and novel workshops as well. Do you have a favorite author or story or novel that you teach? Uh, there, there, uh, I probably have too many <laughs> is, is the tricky thing. Um, there, there's people that I often go back to and, and there are people who I've gone back to for years that I kind of move away from and then go, go back to, um, you know, at a later time. Um, there's a story by William Trevor, which is called Miss Smith, um, which I really, really love and which I teach because I feel like it does something in terms of it kind of suggests that your sympathy as an audience should be with one character. And then uh, as soon as it kind of has you convinced of that, it shifts it and flips it around. And, and it's just, it's such a kind of model story in terms of how effectively just little choices by the author can be in terms of making the reader, um, kind of determining the reader's relationship to, to what's going on in the story. So, so that would be one, but you know, there's all sorts of things I teach kind of over, over and over again. I'm pretty jealous of the students who get to be in your class. Um, yeah, no, I, it's for me, it's really fun. And hopefully for most of them, it's fun as well. So, yeah. You've carved out a career as one of America's top short story writers and novelists. Do you want to tell us a bit more about how you got into the field of writing? Um, I started uh, from a very early age. It was something I kind of wanted to, to do. And it's partly my, my mom was, um, uh, when I was kind of 11 or 12, I think it was 12, um, she um, saw an ad for a contest for, for Mormon-related science fiction stories. I grew up as, as Mormon. I'm an excommunicated Mormon now. Um, and so she was interested in doing that and decided she would try to write a Mormon-related science fiction story, and in fact did, and got it published in this anthology. But when she was doing that um, to give herself time to, to work, she, I was the oldest of five, and she told all the kids to, um, you know, she would set us all up doing something. So my youngest brothers and sisters kind of were, were, you know, playing with blocks or doing art or, or other things like that. And for me as the oldest, she said, oh, you should just write. And so I kind of sat down uh, and, and tried to write a story and very quickly realized it was something I really enjoyed. There was something I really liked about it, which shouldn't be all that surprising because I really liked to read. I think at that time, my whole family kind of grew up just, um, we would go on vacation and then everyone would sit around reading books. Um, so, uh, so, so that was kind of the beginning. And then when I was in, uh, a freshman in college, I had a Welsh poet named Leslie Norris, who was, uh, one of my teachers for a creative writing course. And he was just, uh, incredibly helpful and incredibly encouraging. And just kind of through the course of working with him that year and the years that followed, I really started to feel like this was something I wanted to do as a lifelong endeavor. And, and, you know, and I, I went other directions too. I ended up doing a PhD in, in, in critical theory and English literature um, at University of Washington, um, but, but kind of was writing the whole time when I was doing that. And so I had my first book of fiction kind of come out uh, early in that uh, uh, process, uh, early when I was, you know, when I very first was starting to teach at kind of at other universities. 
Um, and yeah, just, it really stuck. I, I, for me, there's something really satisfying and interesting about writing. Uh, and it does something for me that I can't really get in other sorts of ways. I want to ask you a bit more about Mormonism because I feel like religion in general plays a part in your work. But particularly with Mormonism, I think that the narrative of Joseph Smith in particular is such a great story. It's so rich. Do you want to tell us a bit more about growing up as a Mormon? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true that you you grew up reading stories in the Book of Mormon and the Bible that are they're very kind of narratively related and that kind of justify the way in which things have happened or developed, um, which is, you know, true to some degree with any Christian religion. But there's also the huge origin story of Joseph Smith finding the golden plates and and this this kind of very dramatic thing that happened. And the notion, you know, that it reads kind of in retrospect, it's kind of like a classical fantasy story of like the young boy who um, you know is, is um, not distinguished in any way kind of finding in something that kind of changes everything. Um, so, so that I think was was very prominent for me growing up. but the other thing is I had a, a, a great great grandmother whose name was Ruth May Fox um, who lived till she was 105 um, and she uh, was a poet and also uh, wrote a, a number of hymns that were in the Mormon hymn book. And so I kind of grew up um, thinking of myself as, as being kind of connected to, to people who are interested in words as something that, um, you know, were more than just a way of conveying information. And so, uh, and then also very early on, um, my, my parents um, gave me a copy of, there's a little book one of my ancestors put together about these experiences he had as a, as a kid. Um, called Charlie Has a Calf. <laughs> it's just about like little Western stories, nothing really distinguished about them, but just the idea, I think from a very early age was, you know, you, I, I, could, I could write, you know, it was a possibility for me. There was something both in the religion that kind of suggested a kind of importance to writing that was beyond information. Um, there was a kind of power to it that was really interesting. And, and then just, you know, the examples of people in my family who had, had done some degree of writing um, was, you know, I felt really um, important to me, even though their writing is so different from the kinds of things I do. As I told you before we started recording, I'm relatively new to your work. I've only read Glassy, Burning Floor of Hell and The Warren. And I guess both of those books, they look at things like alienation. They could be classified as weird fiction or existential horror, I guess. But I want to ask you, how do you define your work? Well, so I think that's changed over the years for me. I mean, I, when I was first beginning to write, I think I had no idea how to define what I was doing. I kind of felt like I was, you know, it was, I was kind of loosely, it was innovative fiction or speculative fiction. I saw it as very literary, kind of still do, um, but, but also had a real genre connection. And so, so I think I, from the very beginning, there was a foot, uh, one foot of my work was in, in genre and one foot of my work was in literature. And as time's gone on, um, that line has become more and more effaced or erased and, and, and less and less important to me in terms of, of, of thinking about it as a separation um, and, and thinking about it more as a kind of continuum. So, so I think it was you know, pretty late that I started to think of myself as, as being directly connected to genre. And it was, when would it have been? It was 2003 or so, um, which is obviously years ago, but still pretty late in terms of my development. Um, uh, when I had a book called uh, The Wavering Knife came out, it was, it was uh, nominated for an International Horror um, Guild Award. Um, and I thought, that's weird. Um, it's strange they think of my work as horror and, and kind of just brushed it off. 
And then it won that award. And once it won, I thought, huh, I should probably be thinking about this a little bit differently or I should be paying attention to what's going on. So I went back and I read the work of the other finalists for that award for that year and realized, oh, you, the thing that I thought I knew about genre is out of date and, and maybe incomplete in a lot of ways. Um, and, and that was kind of the moment of kind of opening a door to thinking more productively about just science fiction and genre and, and, and horror and, and how all those things could be related to kind of literary impulses. Um, and that was, you know, when I was a kid, I, I grew up reading a lot of um, uh, uh, genre fiction, uh, read a lot of science fiction, especially read a lot of Michael Moorcock, read a lot of Gene Wolfe and, and, you know, and very, a variety of other people. Um, but then had kind of put that aside when I went to college and, and things like that. And, and, you know, later kind of after um, winning that award, I ended up kind of going back to those people and realizing just how, how um, effective and interesting they were. Um, so it, was, it started with there. And then I think it was, I, I wrote a book called The Open Curtain and Peter Straub, um, we asked him to, to um, blurb the book. And he, uh, when he was doing it, wrote and said, um, I'm going to, I just want to let you know, I'm going to call it literary horror. And I want to make sure you're comfortable with that. And I thought a little bit about that and, and you know, came to think, you know, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. So, so I think it's just gradually been developing. I, I don't feel like my work has really dramatically changed in terms of its relationship to genre over the years. It's probably changed a little bit and it's changed in terms of the degree to which it acknowledges it. Um, and it has changed in the sense that now it's being very actively read by genre writers as well as literary writers. Um, but, but I think in terms of the basic kind of impulses, it's, it's been something that's been there from the beginning, but I haven't always known what to, what to call it. And, and, you know, at this point, I have a very kind of like almost bifurcated audience where, where I have people who read my work and think of it as literary fiction that has a kind of genre component. And then there's other people who, who are from the genre community who read it as like being in a very active, uh, in, uh, engaged discussion with stuff going on in that community in terms of what other people are writing. And I think both of those things are things that are, you know, part of my work and important in my work. I think the idea of genre fiction is really interesting. And traditionally, I probably would have been put off by things in the horror section or in the sci-fi section. One of the things about your work is you seem to traverse the world of literary fiction and genre fiction as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's stuff on, on both sides of the genre divide that are really good and also stuff on both sides that's really not interesting and not good. And depending on where your reading kind of stands, you're pretty good at picking out what those things are on, on your side of the line. Um, but I think a kind of very curated read of, of what's going on in genre fiction is can you can read some just really amazing stuff that stands up really well next to what's going on in, with literary fiction. And, you know, there, there was a moment when um, Brad Morrow, who runs Conjunctions magazine, uh, did an issue with Peter Straub, which was called The New Wave Fabulists. And the idea of that issue was that he would... Um, uh, uh, publish people in the magazine, which is kind of a high art literary magazine um, who were from the genre community, just as a way of kind of redefining um, where we stand, uh, you know, how we think about them. The idea being, if you have a certain lens, you're looking at them and you're only gonna see certain kinds of things. And, and that too was a kind of important moment for me when I was reading those stories and realizing, you know, oh, John Crowley's doing amazing work. Gene Wolfe, who I was reading years ago, I should be reading again. And in fact, you know, I, since, 
uh, in the last 15 or 20 years, I've, I've just I've gone back and, and reread a lot of the work that, that um, I read with, with less of a kind of critical or less of a kind of aware eye uh, when I was, was young by Gene Wolfer or other people. Uh, you know, Kelly Link is someone as well who is very much embraced by the literary community, um, but at the same time is, is, you know, sees herself as very connected to the genre community. That's her, her, her chief thing. So th those, those kind of blurring those lines and um, allowing us to see the good work on both sides of it, I think can be really interesting. But it can be also really daunting when you just, you go to a bookstore and just look at like the science fiction section and have no idea where to start or what's good or what's not good. You know, you need someone to point you to Ian Banks or someone to point you to, you know, to whatever uh, John, John M. Harrison or other people who are really interesting. Your most recent collection, Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, features things like prosthetic limbs and toxic clouds. The title story, Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, of course, comes from Miss Macintosh, My Darling. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your collection? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, a, there's various kinds of themes that come up in the uh, collection. Um, the stories aren't um, related in terms of plot necessarily, but there are a lot of thematic relationships between stories. Um, there's a lot of stories that are kind of, that you can describe as ecological horror in some ways. Uh, there's stories that have science fictional elements um, and, and some that are, are very directly science fiction, other stories that are, are, are kind of um, swaying more towards horror in terms of what they do. Um, uh, there's stories that almost have a fable-like feel, like the, the story you were um, alluding to, Leg, which opens the collection. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, really, it's a, it's the, the way I see the collection is fun functioning is, is the stories are kind of talking to one another without always being all that direct about it. Uh, and and they're, they're really trying to take on um, thematic issues that relate to what it means to be human, what it means to live in the world that we're living in, uh, that, that, you know, a world which seems to be rapidly changing and, and probably for the worst in many ways. Um, and also, I mean, I, I, I think there's, there's commonly in a lot of my stories, there's a lot that's done in, in terms of mood. Um, there's, there's a kind of um, open-endedness to a lot of my stories, kind of darkness that's there, but also, you know, I, I, hopefully what my stories do is kind of put you in a position as a reader by the end of them to um, continue to think about what's been suggested in them to not kind of give you all the answers, but, but kind of open up a way of thinking about the world. The title story, The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, comes from Miss Macintosh, My Darling, and that is seeing a reprint very soon from Dalkey Archive. Do you want to tell us a bit more about the title? Yeah, no, I, I Miss Macintosh, My Darling is a, a wonderful book. Um, I didn't read it until, um, you know, just four, maybe three or four years ago, four or five years ago now, I guess. Um, but Stephen Shaviro, a really interesting critic, kind of was, was reading it on, um, Facebook and kind of giving like long um, commentaries on all of it. And that became a, a kind of occasion for me to, 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 to just keep up with the reading and see what, what was going on. And that, that line is from uh, Miss Macintosh, my, my darling, but it's almost a throwaway line. It's a very small moment, but I just, I loved it so much. I felt like it deserved to kind of have a life of its own as a title for a, a story. And yeah, Miss Macintosh, my darling is, is this kind of, gigantic maximalist novel um, by Marguerite Young. Um, who, and, and the thing that's so wonderful about it is, is it, it's very slippery in terms of the kind of reality it's creating. Um, it, it feels to me like it's constantly suggesting reality is kind of contingent. It's shifting and changing in ways that are just, that I feel very, very connected to, even though thematically it's so different from my work in many ways. 
um, that, that I just, I think it's a book that, that anyone interested in kind of long novels um, should, should read. Something very funny, I think, that's happened, which has been the kind of dominance of long fiction, kind of, you know, these, these doorstopper novels by male voices. So you have James Joyce, who everybody knows, for instance, there's, there's several others, David Foster Wallace. Um, but, but there are these kind of amazing writers um, who are female, who are just doing really wonderful work. And for me, Marguerite Young is kind of, you know, the, the chief among them uh, and someone who really should be read more. I have my copy on pre-order and I cannot wait to read it. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, it'll, it'll take some months to read, I think. It's a very long book. One of the odd themes in your collection that I picked up was this feeling of oppression across the stories. And also there was even the wearing of masks in some of the stories. I wanted to ask you, were some of these stories written during the pandemic or were they all previous to that? No, I mean, weirdly enough, they were all written before the pandemic. Um, they, but I, I think that there's something about that kind of um, um, claustrophobia of the stories and, and some, some of the paranoia of the stories that kind of make them feel connected in some way to that. Um, but I've had like several times when people have done um, interviews or bookstore readings or things, they've, they've kind of assumed that I'd written some of these during the pandemic. And it's just, I think it's just that my mind is kind of um, already kind of braced for a pandemic at any given moment. Um, so it's just, you know, happy or unhappy coincidence. I would much rather not have the pandemic, even if that means that people don't see the work as directly reflecting our reality. Now that I've read two of your books and I've really enjoyed them, what do you think I should go to next? Um, you know, probably the next one to go to. So I, I think of myself as much more of a story writer than, than a novelist, even though I, I do both things. Um, and I would suggest the next one would be one of two books. Um, Song for the Unraveling of the World, which is the book that came out just before The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell. Um, and that book was, it won the World Fantasy Award and won the Shirley Jackson Award and was a finalist for the Ray Bradbury Prize. And so um, it did quite well for itself. Um, and, and I feel like that some of my best stories are in that. And then the other one I would suggest is, is another collection of stories called uh, A Collapse of Horses, uh, which is, is uh, you know, just a couple of books back, um, which um, I think if you like things in Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, then you like both of those two books. What are you working on at the moment? Um, I'm trying to, to, I just finished a new collection of stories, which I just sent to, to Coffee House and, I'm waiting to, to hear um, uh, whether they uh, want to go ahead with it or not. They seem to be happy with uh, publishing my story collections, which I'm, um, so I'm assuming they will, but, but you know, we'll just have to see. Um, and so that's, that's just finished. Um, I um, am trying to work on a novel right now, which is a kind of sequel to another book I wrote called Last Days which is a lot of people think of Last Days as my, my strangest book. It's, it's about an amputation cult and someone who gets involved in it, um, but, but not, not gruesome uh, in many ways. Um, and uh, so I'm working on a, a book called Phantom Limb, which is related to that. And then I'm trying to do just, just a few other things. I'm always kind of working on stories, have an idea for another novel, um, but it's just a question of when I'll get a chance to to write it. I'm, I'm actually, I'm just starting a sabbatical. Um, so I'm going to have the next six months or so off. And so I'm, I'm spending the next week or two just thinking about what do I really want to, to do for that time and whether I want to try to do some TP work or, um, or how much I want to try to work on my fiction. And I think it's, it's going to be, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to really try to, to, to work as much on my fiction as I possibly can. 
I want to ask you about format because whenever I speak to writers or publishers, there seems to be a push for longer form fiction over short stories. Do you ever feel a pressure to stick with long form fiction? And what makes you keep coming back to the short story? Um, I really love the short story as a form. I feel like you can do so much with, with you know, in a con- con- condensed or um, uh, delimited space, just, just a very short space. Uh, and and that for me is just one of the joys of it. You know, how much can I do in, in how few words? In that sense, I think I'm tied in a lot of ways to minimalism in terms of how I approach things. Um, so, so there's that on the one hand, I just, I really think people gravitate naturally more towards novels or short stories and, and my personality, um, uh, MT Anderson, who's, who's a friend of mine, um, we've talked about this before because he almost entirely does novels. And he, um, um, you know, says when, when he gets an idea, he kind of massages it and shapes it and kind of expands it and kind of works through it. And then he says, and what you do is you, you get an idea and you kind of like, you write about it quickly and then you throw it away and go on to the next idea. And for him, that's, that's you know, his personality doesn't, um, it feels almost like I'm wasting the idea, but I feel like I have more ideas than I could ever write about. And so I think one of the reasons I gravitate towards short stories is that um, it allows me to kind of jump into these worlds, explore things, and then kind of leave and, and try something else. Um, so, but, but I also, I guess I would say as, as, the, as time's gone on, as, as I've been writing more and more collections of stories, I think of that more as a kind of um, project. And so the, the book of stories itself kind of ends up having a particular shape, ends up with the stories talking to one another. There's lots of times where I'll have stories that are done that I don't include in the book because they don't feel right for the particular shape of that book. There's moments when I write stories that, uh, you know, um, uh, to, to make, because I feel there's something incomplete about the shape of a book of stories. So there is like still, I think a little bit of a tendency to feel like, you know, especially at the book publishing stage, um, it should, even if it's a book of stories, it should feel like a longer project. Um, but at the same time, um, yeah, I just, I love stories. I love novellas and stories, uh, best of all. And every once in a while, I'll have an idea for a novel and we'll, we'll work on the novel and publish it and be happy with it. Um, but I, I definitely, Coffee House has been really good about not making me feel like I have to write a novel. They're happy with my short story collections and happy with the idea of, of, of doing them. And in fact, several times they've been willing to let me uh, take a novel elsewhere and, and they would continue to do my story collection. So I just feel like I'm in a very privileged and lucky space um, and that you know I probably could publish a book with a larger house, but I think that if I did, um, the tendency would be for them to push me towards, why don't you write a novel? Uh, and there is this kind of fallacy that novels are the things that sell. And I think that ends up being a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that as long as, as you have a kind of marketing um, uh, uh, system that's kind of directed towards novels, as long as that's the thing that's kind of culturally valorized, then th- those are gonna be the things that, that sell the most. But, but I think a good collection of stories, especially once you know the writer, um, can do quite well as well. One of the things that I noticed about your work is the really highly visual nature to it. It's almost filmmaking quality. I wanted to ask you, is there any chance that we're going to see some of your work on the screen at some point? Yeah, I mean, I, I do have that kind of, um, there is a kind of visual quality to my work. And there, there is a chance, yes, 
uh, th that something will be adapted. There have been things like the novel Last Days I was mentioning, um, where I've sold the film rights uh, for that a number of times, four or five times at this point. Um, and and you know I think one of the things about Hollywood and the way it works in the film industry in general is is that it just takes a lot of luck for something to happen or something to click. Um, so we we had a, a kind of good script and and a director uh, attached before the pandemic, and then the pandemic kind of derailed. Uh, the last day's project, um, and yeah, I, there's there's other things that you know I, I've um, sold. Um, Song for the Unraveling of the World has been optioned by someplace, and um, and yeah, I think I think probably eventually with a little luck uh, it happened, but it's just you know it, it's going to take just the right moment and the right amount of luck. That'll make a great HBO or Netflix series. Can't wait. <laughs> Thank you. What are some of your top tips for writers looking to get published? Um, I, I think that uh, persistence is the main thing. I just think keeping on um, sending work out, not getting too discouraged about um, things being turned down. Also kind of using the moment in which a, a piece of work is out at the magazine or, or out with a publisher as a time to kind of have a break from it and then maybe return to it and revise it as needed. Um, I think often it's like just having some time away from a piece um, so that you can see it more objectively is, is really good. And one way from that is to do that is, you know, submit it, doesn't go anywhere. And then after two or three months, if it comes back to you, then you can kind of try to re-see re it with new eyes. Um, but the other thing I do to kind of create a, a, a distance where I can try to be more objective about the work is I read a lot. And, and I think just the act of reading other people's work and, and kind of can, cleanse the palate and allow you to go back to your work a little more objectively. So, so I'd say that um, persistence, um, not getting discouraged, um, um, being willing to kind of, um, you know, do everything you can to see your work as objectively as possible and, and, and you know, be willing to revise it in those cases. Um, and, and for me, those are kinds of, you know, the main things. I think, you know, also just reading a lot as a way, not only of kind of getting objectivity on your work, but also, um, reading as a writer to try to give your sense, yourself a sense of different narrative strategies. Let's move on to your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the doors of literature for you? Um, you know, very early on, it was, uh, you know, uh, Poe. Um, my, my mom read Poe to me when I was pretty young. <laughs> and, and that was, you know, that kind of um, was really interesting for me just because it was different than, than other things I'd read. Uh, not too long after that, um, my, my father actually introduced me to, to Kafka and um, set, set me down with the basic Kafka and, and read one of the stories to me and, and then kind of left me with the book. And that became almost a formative experience for me um, in terms of just, you know, suddenly realizing there were all these possibilities in terms of what fiction could do that I just hadn't been aware of. Um, this is, I was probably 14 at the time and I was reading, you know, largely fantasy. Um, but it, there's a nice kind of transition from what fantasy is doing to what Kafka is doing in some ways. Um, and, you know, things like uh, A Country Doctor, for instance, were just had an incredible impact on me or, um, you know, just, just various other things in that work. Um, and, you know, before that, I mean, it was um, Gene Wolfe. Um, I, I read The Book of the New Sun when I was pretty young and, and just stumbled into it by accident. And, and really enjoyed it, but also I don't know that I fully understood it at the time. And, you know, since then I've gone back to it uh, several times and just been increasingly impressed by what he, he does there. But 
also been been surprised to find out how influence influential he's been on me over the years. And then you know a few years ago I was reading um, the kind of complete stories of J.G. Ballard and realized that those early stories by Ballard, um, which I'd read as a freshman in college, um, that they were just really part of, of the way in which I thought about literature. A lot of them are kind of, you know, almost phenomenological in terms of the way in which they approach things. There's so much about perception and, and other things, just the first couple of books of, of, of Ballard stories. Um, so those are the ones that come to mind pretty readily. Um, Raymond Carver was also really important to me early on. I, I've written a little book about Raymond Carver's what we talk about when we talk about love um, as, as a kind of formative book for me, and it certainly was. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's others I could probably think of, but those are probably good examples to begin. One author I wanted to ask you about is Lovecraft, because I think thematically you cross paths a little bit, even though I think your work is quite different. Does he have any influence on your work? It's funny with Lovecraft because I knew Lovecraft, I knew his name, but I hadn't actually read much by him until I was in my um, early thirties, I think. Um, and, and, you know, I'm in my fifties now. Um, so, so I don't think he was a big influence early on, but, but there's certainly stuff about his work that, that really interests me. There's something in terms of the kind of uh, attitude towards um, humans, humanity's place in, in existence or in, in, in the cosmos that I find really interesting. And there, there are a few stories that really stick out for me. And since, you know, I, I've taught him often in that mon uh, the monstrous and the terrible class that I was talking about. Um, uh, but something like The Whisper in the Darkness is, is for, for me, a, a really interesting story and a story that's really influential. But I would say someone like Algernon Blackwood is more important to me than, than um, Lovecraft. I came across Blackwood around, I mean, probably around the same time as Lovecraft, not, not much earlier, um, but he, he ended up um, really sticking with me in, in, in different ways. And Lovecraft, I mean, I think thematically he's really interesting. There's, there's, there's great stories and there's some, um, if you have particular stories, I'd love to, to hear which ones you're thinking of, but um, there's, there's some interesting stories in his work, but, but stylistically he's so different from what I do. I think he's a really interesting writer and I think weird fiction is influenced consciously or subconsciously by him quite a lot. No, I mean, I mean I've been funny that way. And even though I read pretty widely and read a lot, um, somehow I just had never read Lovecraft. It's the same, like I, I was teaching um, at Naropa University, which is the only Buddhist university in America at, at the Jack Kerouac School of Writing there and suddenly realized I'd never read Kerouac. Um, which, which was, you know, which was just strange to suddenly realize there's this huge hole. Um, and with Lovecraft, I mean, it's almost like so much other weird stuff kind of uh, is influenced by him that it's hard not to kind of absorb him almost without reading him. But, but yeah, I did like eventually once I started reading him, I just read through the whole uh, canon of his work and did find him um, provocative and interesting and, and sometimes maddening. Let's move on to the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to. Yeah. Um, right now I'm in the middle of um, Andy Davidson's The Hollow Kind, um, which is a really interesting kind of, um, I, I guess you'd call it a gothic novel um, uh, that, that, that uh, you know, is, is kind of set in two different time periods. But he's so excellent at um, kind of giving a sense of place and also a sense of character. Very kind of rich uh, read, very interesting read. 
Um, other things I've read recently, um, in terms of the genre side of things, I read Attila Veris' The Black Maybe, which is a Hungarian um, book, which is gonna be coming out, I think in October um, from, from Valancourt um, books, which I thought was really great in terms of the stories. They're, they're, they're strange and challenging and, and very unpredictable in terms of just the way in which they, they kind of take on um, strangeness and, and, and the weirdness of, of, of it. Um, I read another book of, uh, that's coming out from uh, Dalkey Archive, uh, Deshiel Carrera's The Deer, uh, which is a very compressed and strange little book. Uh, I really like that. Um, what else am I reading or do I wanna read? Um, I'm in the middle of a Stanislaus Lem book, uh, the, the latest book of stories that kind of was published just a year or two ago, kind of late stories. Um, uh, I just read uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Um, a student and I kind of read it together, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, and there's all sorts of things I'm sure I'm forgetting. <laughs> Did I see that you were reading Tenders of Flesh by Augustina Bastarica? Uh, yes, I've read Tender as the Flesh and like that very much. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a it's a surprising book and and weirdly moving despite the kind of content of the book. Um, yeah, I like that quite a bit. And then I guess the other thing that stood out for me that I read recently is uh, Uchida Hayakin's book In the Realm of the Dead, which was a book that Dalkey Archive published. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe. 10 or 15 years ago, and it's probably out of print at this point. But um, Japanese writer who's very well known as a kind of Japanese modernist in Japan, but basically unknown here. And so many of those stories were, were surprising and strange and effective, but I, I really liked it. Are there some living authors who have carte blanche with you? Uh, there, there probably are. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the ones that had carte blanche have died. <laughs> so, um, um, I don't I, I often, I, I try to read DeLillo's work when it comes out and I've, I've been pretty successful in terms of keeping up, uh, keeping up with that. Um, I, uh, same with Cormac McCarthy. Uh, I try to keep on top of, of his work and what he's doing. Uh, Catherine Davis is someone else who I tend to, to read her work um, whenever I see it, whenever it comes out. Um, uh, and then, you know, there's, there's various other, um, uh, people that uh, that I just you know I I, I try to be aware of uh, Murnane Gerald Gerald Murnane is someone who I just read his latest book which came out a month ago and and was very interested in it so I suppose I do um, kind of keep up with him as well um, yeah we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero we're speaking with Brian Evanson. Are you sick of the NRA? Do you think they wield too much power? Why not support the right to arm bears? Go to change.org and sign the petition today. We're back on the Zero. It's time for Brian's Top 10. Um, I mean, this is always hard because you feel like you're losing, you know, leaving out the, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like, I'll, I'll hang up the, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get done with this call and then I'll, I'll remember all the things I should have mentioned. So, 
Um, you know, I, I, I won't mention Beckett or Kafka since I mentioned them before, but they both were incredibly important for me. Um, uh, Gerald Bernays' The Plains uh, is a really um, a key book for me, really interesting book. Um, even though I, I think, you know, I, I'd recommend pretty much any of his books. I think Border Districts is, is really superb. And, um, a Million Windows is, and he writes in this kind of curious, strange way that's really different than anybody else I know. Um, I mentioned Catherine Davis just a minute ago. Her book Duplex is probably one of my uh, favorite books I've read since um, the turn of the century. Um, and it's just, it's a, such a strange book because it, it's basically just a story of um, people kind of living in a town but it gets stranger and stranger and you get all these details and she manages to kind of bring together, you know, fantastic uh, details with just really ordinary details in a way that's really effective. It's just really great. I've taught it, um, I think four times at this point, that's a book that I've taught more than any other book actually. Um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the genre side of things, uh, Robert Aikman uh, is someone who I really like and who has been hugely influential for me. Um, his book, uh, any of his books would, of stories would be, are, are great to begin with. But he has a book called Cold Hand and Mind, which has a story in it called The Hospice, which is among my, my uh, most, you know, it's, it's probably my, my favorite story of his, um, even though there's others that are pretty close in terms of that. So, and I, I think it's funny because a lot of the books that, I, I find myself drawn to her books of stories, which probably makes sense since, um, since I tend to write stories. Uh, another book of stories that is just really superb is John Keane's Counter Narratives. Um, nice range of stories, um, really interesting in terms of what it does culturally um, and very, very, very strong, um, uh, just beautiful writing uh, in terms of the way things come together. Um, I'd also recommend, and this is probably going to be a surprise considering the other things I've talked about. Um, one of my favorite writers is Muriel Spark, um, who I didn't come to till fairly late, but The Prime of Miss Jean Brody is kind of, for me, a perfect book, even though, again, it's like in terms of its content and stuff. If, if you were to say, you know, Brian Evanson really likes this, this book about a girl's school, um, it would just seem incomprehensible, but, but I do. I think it's just, it's a superb book. She's so precise and so exacting, but, but everything of hers, I just, I really like. There's another book of hers called Reality and Dreams that is just, just really wonderful. Um, but, but all the, the, the novels and the novellas are, are really great. Um, who else can I mention? Um, uh, Paul Bowles, um, he was important to me. Um, he kind of became important to me because someone compared me to him in a review of my uh, first book and I hadn't read him. And then I went back and, and realized, oh, this is, this is the reason, that, you know, I, I, I can see a connection there. But his collection, Pages from Cold Point and Other Stories, uh, is wonderful, as is the, the Delicate Prey. Um, I don't know how many I'm at now. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I can mention as well, Cormac McCarthy, um, Outer Dark uh, is a book that I really love. Um, I, I love Blood Meridian as well, but Outer, there's something about Outer Dark and the way it has a kind of relationship to, to the Bible and a relationship to religion that I 
um, that, that that's, feels to me very sacrilegious in a way that I connect to. Um, that, and and, and I, I think that book is very effective. Um, it's a book I've written about. I've written a lot about McCarthy over the years. Um, and, and certainly he's been someone that's been very important to me. Um, let's see. Uh, I can mention one more. And I think either we're at 10 or 11, I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, there's, there's, a, there's a Zimbabwean author whose name is Dambutsa Marachera, um, who, who um, uh, died pretty young, but he, he, his work, his stories in particular, um, were, were very important to me. I, I kind of ran across him by accident uh, in the library of the university that I was doing my undergraduate work in and, and just really found the work very strange and very powerful. Um, he has a book called The House of Hunger, um, which begins with a kind of long novella of that same title. But there's a story in that, which is called The Slow Sound of His Feet, um, which is um, very strange and, and very, um, takes a lot of narrative risks and that I really like. So, and I tend to like writers who, who are pushing me in different directions. They may even be a little rough around the edges in terms of, I'm, I'm less interested in it being an incredibly polished uh, uh, piece of fiction and more interested in, in, in being surprised by it and in, in it showing me new narrative possibilities. I have Duplex by Catherine Davis on my shelf and I can't wait to read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I really like it. And it is a book that keeps on shifting and changing um, and, and does some, there's, there's moments when it just, it, it moves in directions that are just so startling. Um, and I feel like every time I read it, I, I see different things about it. So her new book, Aurelia Aurelia, is also very good. It's a kind of memoir that's related to the death of her husband. Um, so very different books. And that's one of the things that's great about her work is that every book strikes me as different from the books that came before. We should probably wrap it up. But before we do, do you want to tell us where we can go and find you online and where we can go and buy your brilliant books? Uh, yes, uh, you can get in touch with me. Um, uh, I have a Facebook page and you're welcome to, um, uh, if, if you write to me, I'll just add you to that. Um, I also have www.brianevanson.com as a website, um, which is woefully out of date, but that also gives contact information in terms of if you want to email me or things like that, you should be able to get in touch with me that way. And then my books are generally available, um, you know, on the internet and uh, in various bookstores. Um, I think there's only one in Australia that was published in Australia, Song for the Unraveling of the World was. Collapse of Horses was as well, I think. Oh, Collapse of Horses yeah. was, you're right. That's the one, sorry, I'm confused about which one. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but yeah, generally they're, they're, they're things that can be found. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. Nice to talk to you as well. Thanks once again to Brian Evanson. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with you next episode next week.